Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Holy Spirit, I invite you here. Pray that you give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and a knowledge of you. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we might know you, so that we might grasp the hope to which you have called us, your glorious inheritance in the saints, and your incomparably great power for us who believe. We say, Lord, we believe. We believe that there's power in your word, there's power in your spirit to transform us. Even as you use me as a vessel, that would your Holy Spirit come and awaken the hearts of your church. I pray that you give us the eyes to see, give us the ears to hear, and give us a heart to know you. We say that we desire to come into an encounter with you through your word. And would you transform us as we look at the Son of Man face to face in the throne room. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm kind of, uh, I'll touch a bit briefly on the, what I discern to be the prophetic season that we are in and um, why I think this message is timely. As I was speaking to um, Samuel Whitfield, uh, one of the things which he said was that he felt a real soberness in the, in the time and the generation that we're in because the Lord is flooding the world with his word. We live in a generation of unprecedented excess of information. We're inundated with information. And he was saying that Bible smuggling is almost a thing in the past for many countries because of the internet. Um, and we live in a time where you don't have to memorize scripture anymore. All you do is just flick open your Bible app or you version or whatever and the scripture is there. It's so accessible. But the question is that with this kind of access and with this kind of gifting in our generation, my question is what is the responsibility on us? That if the apostles and the early church had to rely on scrolls, only the really wealthy families could afford a family scroll that people had to memorize the word in order to understand that. But here we are and we don't even bring physical Bibles anywhere anymore. I bring it once a year when I preach. Um, it's like, the, the question is, what is the responsibility on our generation? What revelations does the Lord have unpacked for us? And I think it's in this vein and in this, in this context that I feel um, the Lord has launched me into this season, like, like what um, Andrea said. Um, I went to Israel um, from the 3rd to the 11th of July this year, and it changed my life. Um, my parents are here today, and they gave me this Bible in 2006. And I, I've been reading it relatively regularly, except for some seasons of my life. Most of my life, I've read, tried to read it every day. But coming back from Israel, I had this sense was like I didn't even know the Bible. Like I felt a sense and an urgency in my heart that I needed to reread every single thing inside because the lens had just completely shifted. And I, I felt like while a lot of things that I knew in the past was real and was true, um, it, it was just different. I don't even know how to describe it. And so my main goal today, if you have any takeaway, is that I feel like I just want to kindle a love for the Scriptures. And to make just a very simple point that in the Scriptures we encounter Jesus. That this book here is living and is alive. And that we are supposed to encounter Him. And I call this eating the scroll. Okay? So my wife did these slides. Do you have the slides? So anyway, Hannah did these slides because she saw my sermon and she was like, nobody's going to be able to track with you. Um, so you need some slides. 
I think she was like, what, there are like 20 different scripture references in here. Okay, anyway, if you don't have the slides, is it? Oh, okay, good luck. Okay, so anyway, it's called Eat the Scroll. Okay, so for all of you wondering, what is Eat the Scroll? It's like really weird, right? Okay, so um, the first thing is Matthew 4. So if you have your e-Bibles, uh, you can turn to Matthew 4. Um, and and this, is, this is where I'm going to start off. Matthew 4 is the first time um, that I believe that is recorded in Scripture that the Father from heaven speaks audibly on Jesus' ministry. And he does that three times in the, in the earthly ministry of Jesus. He speaks audibly three times. So this is the first. We'll cover the last one later. Um, but this is essentially the, the temptation of Jesus. He speaks in Matthew chapter 3 and he declares over Jesus, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Essentially opening up the earthly ministry of Jesus. Straight after that, the Holy Spirit drives Jesus to the wilderness and he's tempted there 40 days and 40 nights. He's the spiritual Israel. He's the true Israel. He's the one who will fulfill all of Israel's um, destinies and promises. It's, it's supposed to prefigure how Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And when he goes there, and the first and the primary temptation of the, the Satan or the accuser or the devil is this. If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Um, obviously, Satan always does this. He takes what God literally said in front of everybody. You are the son of God, in whom I am well pleased. And he says, if God really said that, I'm like, hello, do you like, were you paying attention? Um, but anyway, Jesus responds and his rebuttal wasn't that. It's like, you and I both heard what he said. It's the same thing in the Garden of Eden. He takes the word of God and then he tries to twist it and he says, do you really believe it? And Jesus' response is extremely t- telling. He quotes from Deuteronomy 8. And he quotes Moses. And essentially he says this. He says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Um, in Deuteronomy 8, it's, it's exactly the same there. He says, he brought you, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors knew, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's Deuteronomy 8. I want to make a statement here that biblical understanding, I believe, is a matter of life and death. That Jesus is drawing an analogy in the same way that bread is a matter of life and death in the wilderness and is a desert, in the arid desert. So, biblical understanding and the prophetic ministry to hear the voice of God is a matter of life and death. And I think that sometimes we, we underestimate it. For a long time in my life, I felt that biblical understanding is a good to have. Maybe good for Andre to have. You know, um, As I'm inundated with the tasks of life and I have to do things, I have no time to seriously sit down and get this thing into my system. So it's a good to have. But I think what Jesus is saying here is that in the same way, imagine you're in the wilderness and you say, I've got to get somewhere. I've got to get out of this wilderness. I've got no time to eat and drink. I'm just going to walk. It's ultimately unsustainable. I feel like in our spiritual, it's the same thing. It's like this, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is a matter of life and death. We cannot postpone this for another time, another season, so that we can get on with the task and the responsibilities of our lives. Moving very quickly on Jeremiah 15. <clears throat> Jeremiah 15. Is it on there? Jeremiah 15, it says this. Um, this is Jeremiah writing. and He says, Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O God, Lord of hosts. 
basically I'm trying to pull out scriptures to justify why is this thing called eating the scroll because it's very weird to a lot of people okay so by anyway you can see that there's a there's a there's a logic that Jesus is talking about bread Jeremiah here is talking about eating the words of God the context if you read the entirety of Jeremiah and read Lamentations as well Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet he doesn't exactly have many words of honey for people most of it is about exile, it's about judgment, it's about punishment and warning, calling the leaders of Jerusalem to repent. But Jeremiah also has some of the most amazing words of encouragement and prophecies. So I gave some uh, thing there which I have totally no time to go to. A lot of us are super familiar with Jeremiah 29, 11, right? Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans to give you hope and future, not plans to harm you, right? And then we often take that as encouragement. And that's good, and that's honey. But if you read the entirety of Jeremiah 29, first he talks about how you will suffer 70 years in exile in Babylon. That's Jeremiah 29 verse 10. So we're like, oh, it's like, oh, not really applicable to me, right? Well, exile in Babylon, now my God has good plans for me. I take that out. Right? And that's a lot of times the approach that we have. But if you read on, and if you read Jeremiah 29, and you read all the way to 33, you start to see that it's, God is far bigger than He has good plans for you. He has good plans for the entirety of humanity and He's writing a story in the nations. And if you read that in conjunction with Zechariah 14, you read that in conjunction with Romans 9-11, to and you read that with Matthew 24-25, if you, if you read all of these passages in parallel, you will start to see an epic nature of the story that God is writing in nations, starting from one man, Abraham, all the way to the nation of Israel, to Jesus, and the faith of the entirety of humanity, what's the church that he's building? And it's far bigger than God has a good plan for me. And I think that's applicable. We need Jeremiah 29, 11 to, to see us through some of the wilderness seasons that individually we're going through. But we need to be plugged into the greater storyline that God's writing. And I think that in order to do that, you need to eat the entirety of Jeremiah. We need to eat Ezekiel. We need to eat Lamentations. Obadiah is still relevant. Okay? Anyway... There are two primary ways in which people eat in the natural. The first way is I order chicken rice. The rice comes, it's like I don't eat cucumber, put the cucumber aside. I'm on a diet, I take out the chicken skin. It's like chicken rice soup is an abomination, I don't drink that. And then you just eat that. So it's like you pick and choose. Or worse still, you go to an Italian restaurant, ask for ketchup. Okay, anyway. <laughs> okay, so then you douse the ketchup. Anyway, so... That, that's one way to eat, okay? That's one way to eat. I'm not judging you in the natural, by all means, go ahead. But I'm saying it's dangerous if you bring this to how you eat the scripture. There's a second way, and there's a superior and cultured way of eating in the Japanese called omakase. Omakase means trust the chef. And this is a completely different way of eating. Omakase essentially means I trust the chef, I eat what he gives me to eat, in the order that he gives me to eat, and however much he gives me to eat. And I pay whatever price that is. <laughs> okay. Uh, the Japanese have cracked it. Okay, the Japanese have cracked it. Omakase is the way that we need to approach the scriptures when we eat it. We cannot pick and choose. We can't say, you know, this is not relevant. You know, Obadiah is not relevant. I'm not Edomite. If I'm an Edomite, all the more I'll find it irrelevant today. Anyway, um, we need to eat the whole thing. Because we've got to trust the chef. We've got to trust that God has preserved these particular writings in canon, in scripture, because 
there's a purpose for the church in this hour. I always approach the, the scripture with three questions. The first is, what is the author saying to the people that he's writing at that time? It's context. The second question I always ask is, why did God preserve these particular words and what is he saying to the church today in general? And then the third question is, what is he saying to me? And I feel like you can only really understand what he's really saying to you when you've answered the first two questions. Anyway, it's omakase. Okay, let's go to Ezekiel 2. Uh, one thing I learned in Israel is that the chapter breaks, while useful, is usually imposed later on. They wrote on an entire scroll. So Ezekiel 2 to 3, chapter 2 to 3 is a single chapter. And actually a lot of times uh, that is the case in scripture. So I'm starting with um, Ezekiel 2 um, verse 9. And essentially, um, or is it verse 8? Verse 8. So God speaks to Ezekiel and says, Son of man, do not be like them. So listen to what I say. Do not rebel like the rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. To me, it's like omakase. Okay? Just open and eat. Whatever I give you, just eat. And what is it that the Lord gives him to eat? He sees the hand stretched out before him. It's a scroll. The, the Lord unrolls the scroll before him. And here, it's a scroll with writing on both sides. Words of lament. And it's written on both sides of the scroll. And then he says, eat what is before you eat the scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. It's really interesting that Ezekiel, he eats it, he says it's sweet in his mouth like honey. But later on, he goes out in bitterness of his spirit. Same thing happens in Revelation 10. John the Revelator goes to, to the angel and the angel unfurls a little scroll before him. He eats it as well. It's sweet in his mouth like honey and then it's sour in his stomach. I always like, what is this about? This is really weird. Anyway, this is my interpretation. I believe that eating the scroll is sweet to your mouth like honey because in eating the scroll, you find communion with God. In the same way that Jeremiah 15, there is a communion and a joy with encountering God and it's sweet and it's honey because the presence of the Lord is gentle, it's sweet and it's the place of communion. But digesting the scroll is difficult. Eating the scroll is sweet, but digesting the scroll gives you discomfort, sour in your stomach because we in our flesh is not compatible with the inerrant word of God. His revelation comes and when you try to digest it, it changes you. Essentially, there is a, a friction and there's a grinding between the truth of God and the, who we are. And if you take the time to digest it while it's sweet in your stomach, you're going to feel a discomfort in you because it's going to change you. And there's a bitterness in your stomach and actually both Ezekiel Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and John the Revelator went out and said they prophesied to kings and nations. And I believe that this is going to be the template of how the Lord is launching people into prophetic ministry in the end times. That prophetic ministry is no longer just going to be about edification and comfort while there is the aspect in 1 Corinthians. I believe that primarily New Testament prophetic ministry is going to be releasing a clear witness of Jesus. It's in the scripture. It's about speaking what God has already been said, not making new things up, but finding Jesus in it and releasing a clarity in witness. And his revelation says the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. I believe that as we dive into this, it's going to change us to release a clear witness of who Jesus is through the scriptures. Anyway, I'm going to talk about three things, the three-point sermon um, that, that eating the scroll does. The first thing is that eating the scroll leads us to an encounter with Jesus. The second thing is that eating the scroll gives us understanding of Jesus' life and it gives us understanding of our lives this time here. And the third 
is that eating the scroll causes our hearts to burn with love. Okay? So let's go to the first one. Um, go to John chapter 5. So in John chapter 5, Jesus goes to the pool of Bethsaida, or the, where the sheep's gate is. And essentially the context is that place. I think um, P- Peter Christensen preached on this in church camp. He was talking about how there was a pool there, and every time the angel came and stirred the waters of the pool, people would get healed. So Jesus goes there, and he, he encounters an invalid who I believe was paralyzed for like 38 years or something. He heals him, but in the process of healing, he gives him the instruction to pick up his mat and walk. So this guy, the context is that the first um, part of John chapter 5 actually is, is the Feast of the Jews. So it's a Feast of the Jews, and if you understand the Feast of the Jews, the entirety of the Feast, usually if it's a major feast, it lasts seven days or more, and the entirety of the Feast is supposed to be a Sabbath. What's more, so you're not supposed to you know, do all the things that you're not supposed to do in the Sabbath during the Feast. It's supposed to be holy unto God. Furthermore, the day where he healed was an actual Sabbath, like a, the last day of the week. Um, so it's a Sabbath of Sabbaths. It's a Sabbath within the festival of a Sabbath. So it's like all the more taboo for you to do anything that is against it. And in this context, he goes and tells the guy to essentially break the law. So the religious leaders who are technically right in interpreting the law goes up to him and challenges Jesus and says, you shouldn't have done that. You broke the law. Jesus' response and his rebuke to them was this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's but it's they that bear witness about me. For if you believe Moses, you believe me, for he wrote of me. He's rebuking them, and in his rebuke, I believe he reveals the point of Scripture. The entirety of the point of Scripture is that they were meant to witness about him. They were meant to preserve for us a record of Jesus. And every single thing in here, as we're later going to see, is relevant to him. So why? So some people think that scripture is a means to an end. It's a book, right? It's a book about a man, right? So I want to find out about a man and read his, his biography. Lah. So I read his biography and find out about him. It's a means to an end. But in John chapter 1, what does it say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Which means that what Jesus is the Logos, which means that he is this. I don't even know how that works. But apparently it is, which means to say that eating the scriptures and eating the scroll is not a means to find Jesus. Eating the scriptures is encountering him. Well, it doesn't correspond to a lot of our experiences because, you know, we open up, it's like, you know, it's a bit dry, you know, I don't really feel like I'm talking to him. But actually, one of the most common questions that people always ask is, how do I hear the word? How do I hear the voice of God? How do I hear what God is saying over my life? And the most common answer that I give is read the scripture. He has already spoken. So a lot of us are wandering and walking around waiting for the will of God to come, not realizing that he's flooding the earth with his voice and his words. And Jesus is the word. But if only we were to read it. But his rebuke says that it's possible to search the scriptures and not find him, which is sobering. I believe that there are two put pitfalls um, to, uh, to the scripture. The first is, as the religious leaders did, approaching it from either an academic perspective or a religious perspective, or trying to accumulate knowledge. And in there, you miss the entire point because you miss the point of Scripture, which is to find Jesus. That's the first pitfall. To be honest, I think most of us don't fall into this pitfall. Okay? 
The second pitfall, which is the other extreme, is this. I already have a relationship with Jesus. Why do I need to read the scripture? I already know him. And I think if we were to be honest, that most of us would tend to this extreme. And that's the thing that we need to guard against. Now let's go to Matthew 17. Matthew 17 is um, it's quite an epic place. It's the Mount of Transfiguration. I believe it happened on the Mount Hebron, uh, somewhere north, quite north of, of Jerusalem. And it's supposedly the furthest north that Jesus ever traveled in his ministry. After that, he was just going down south towards Jerusalem where he was going to be crucified. It's the last time that God the Father spoke audibly before um, in Jesus' earthly ministry. He brings his inner crew, um, Peter, James, and John, and he goes up to this mountain. And there, Jesus becomes transfigured. I believe that uh, that, that is where God kind of answered uh, his John 17 high priestly prayer. Father, glorify me with the glory that I had before with you before the beginning of time. And here he glorifies him and you see that the appearance of Jesus becomes transfigured with the glory of God. Anyway, uh, it's really interesting. If you look here, essentially what happens is that as um, the transfiguration is happening, Moses, which represents the law, and it's a very Exodus scene because Moses in Exodus 20 goes up to Mount Sinai and receives the Ten Commandments from God. And he's also to some extent transfigured. He comes down, his face is shining with the glory of God. He represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. So here we have the law and the prophets appearing before him. And Peter, a lot of people, apparently last time I also thought like, Peter is like this blur guy, you know, he don't know what he's doing. He like, he like, oh, he like, see the glory, then he like, oh, what should I do? Let's build some tents. Actually, it's a correct response. It's the correct response to worship the God of Exodus by building the tabernacles that they did to house the ark of the Lord when they walked through the wilderness. Anyway, the, the point is that Peter is not silly. Peter is responding rightly based on what he knows of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. Anyway, but in the point I wanted to make is this. I think it's underlined. When Moses and Elijah came, he was talking with Jesus, conversing with Jesus. And the, and the same cloud overshadowed them. The voice from the cloud essentially said this. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Jesus came and he touched them. He said, rise, have no fear. But when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The Old Testament is Jesus encoded. They were meant to lead to him. And there are, there are two pitfalls when we come to that. The, the, the New Testament is a commentary on the Old Testament. But I'll make a statement here that you cannot understand the New Testament until you understood the Old Testament. A lot of us have the mentality that the Old Testament is irrelevant because the Old Covenant and the New Testament has replaced it. But actually, if you look at how many times the Old Testament quoted the Old, to me, it's like you can't run away from understanding this to understand the New Testament. Furthermore, for the apostles and for Jesus, the Old Testament was their scripture. When Jesus says, you know, heaven and earth may pass away, but not a single stroke of the law will pass away, he's referring to the Old Testament. Because most of the epistles were not written, right? Okay, second point. Um, this is going to be the long part. The second point, I believe that Scripture gives us understanding of the events of Jesus' life. Knowledge of Scripture doesn't guarantee understanding, as we saw through the Pharisees. But we'll be naive to think ignorance will lead us to understanding. Okay? Luke 24. 
Let's go to Luke 24. It's the resurrection, and I'm going to verse 13 on the road to Emmaus. Emmaus is this small little village seven miles from Jerusalem. Okay? Jesus told them to stay in Jerusalem. These two disciples are running away. Why? Because they are disillusioned that the one whom they hoped would restore the kingdom to Israel and who they pinned all their hopes was killed. Okay? So they are like, you know what? Cut my losses. Let's go away. Okay? They are still pondering at this point, but they are wondering and they are processing in their mind what is happening. It hasn't clicked to them that actually Jesus has told them before that he has to suffer. Did not I tell you that the Son of Man has to suffer and after three days rise again? They didn't click that. Okay? Sometimes we, we as, as Gentiles and as the New Testament church, we come in, we, the first thing we hear is Jesus died for my sins. Right? We kind of enter into the story halfway. Not realizing the disciples actually started the story way back all the way in Abraham and, and, and Adam. And they are, they are, Jesus is like almost like coming in to fulfill all these things. So if you come from this perspective, it's actually not that obvious. It's really obvious on hindsight, but it's not that obvious that when the first coming comes, when Jesus comes as the Messiah, he will have to die. That's why they cannot process it and they cannot accept it. But look at what Jesus did. He comes to them as they are disillusioned and confused despite knowing the scripture. He says, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And this is, I believe, the Bible study that changed history. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, I believe this is what he did. Let's turn to Genesis 1. I'm here. I believe he went through every single book of the Bible, including Leviticus as we shall see later. And he explained to them concerning himself that he was in there. And the, the, the interesting thing is immediately after that, they turned around, they had a 180 degree turn and they went back towards Jerusalem. And they gave a testimony to the apostles who were waiting and hiding that the women are not crazy. The women who reported to you that he's risen again because the tomb is empty and they didn't believe him, these two disciples went back and said, gave the same testimony. And it strengthened the apostles to believe that Jesus was resurrected again. And a Bible study did that. I would die to go to this Bible study with Jesus and open. But I'm going to do very quickly three things um, to demonstrate that Jesus is in all of this. I'm going to go through a passage, Leviticus 23. I'm going to do Psalm 22. And I'm going to do Daniel 6. Okay, let's start with Daniel 6. Essentially, the three things are the law, the right things, and the prophets. Okay, just to give a flavor and a taster that Jesus is in everything. Okay, Daniel chapter 6. This is very heavy, right? Is this okay? Okay. Let me deal with it. Okay, Daniel chapter 6. Uh, most people are like quite familiar, I assume, with Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 is Daniel in the lion's den. Okay, basically, Daniel has distinguished himself among all of the magicians of, of um, I believe this is the Medo-Persian Empire at that time, under King Darius. They're jealous of him, they throw him in the lion's den because he doesn't want, uh, he's continuing to worship God. 
Okay, he's continuing to pray three times a day. A lot of us, we see it, right? Then we sing the song, you know, the song, another in the fire. Okay, like, that's the earlier part of Daniel. But like, we, we look there and say, oh, it's me, you know, I'm in the lion's den. <laughs> and the Lord is going to rescue me. I was like, okay, not wrong, not wrong, but not really the point. Daniel 6 is about Jesus, okay? I'm going to share nine parallels between Daniel 6 and the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, just very quickly. Number one, Daniel distinguishes himself among the elite. He, he incites jealousy among them. Jesus as well. He, the primary reason why the Pharisees hand him over to the rulers to be crucified is because of jealousy. He's distinguishing him, um, himself. You read the end of Matthew 5-7, to he says he taught with authority unlike the scribes. It's really, they're like, who is this guy? He's like this like outsider. Okay, first parallel. Second parallel. In order to pin something against him, they have many false witnesses to come against him, but they cannot agree. Same thing happens in Jesus' trial. Third parallel. The charge that was levied against him was on the basis that he refused to hide his relationship with God. Daniel refused to budge. He continued to pray three times a day. Jesus refused to budge on his identity. He's the son of God. I'm not just a political messiah. You will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. He was crucified on his this basis of his relationship with God, which was supposedly against the law at that time. Okay? In both cases, in Daniel, King Darius as well as Pilate, they were distressed because they knew that Daniel and Jesus respectively was handed over by jealousy and they were innocent. So he tries to get out of trying to kill him. King Darius tries to do that, Pilate tries to do that, but are unable to. Both of them are thrown into a den, so to speak. Daniel is thrown into a lion's den, Jesus is eventually buried in a tomb cut out from a rock. In both these cases, a stone is rolled over the den and a stone is rolled over the tomb. At a time where the, Daniel reports, he says, an angel was there with me to shut the mouth of the lions. At the time of the resurrection, the, what did they see? They saw an angel there at the tomb. An angel was with both Daniel and Jesus. The resurrection as well as Daniel's physical lifting up from them, which was a picture of resurrection, a foreshadowing of Christ, happened at the first light of dawn. Eventually, parallel 8, eventually, the enemies that handed over to them were destroyed. In Daniel's, cases, in Daniel's case, the people who handed Daniel over to be thrown into the lion's den was they themselves were thrown into the lion's den. The very religious leaders tried to preserve their place, and that's why they handed Jesus over to the Romans. In the end, they were destroyed in AD 70. And the final point, which is this, which is that both Jesus and Daniel were restored to their rightful place at the right hand of the king at that time. The parallels to me is like Philippians 2. Philippians 2, right? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who did not consider equality of God something to grasp. He humbled himself, being found in the likeness of a man, to the likeness of a servant, humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. He humbles himself, goes all the way to the den. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name. And at this name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is God. So it's, it's that whole, you, you start to see that narrative up through a lot of scriptures. And actually, once you see that, you cannot unsee it. It's like, oh my goodness, this is about Jesus. Daniel is a real person. Okay? He actually went through these things. But he was almost like, it's like NDP rehearsal. You know, NDP rehearsal, like the fake president comes 
and it's actually like some random dude. And then they all like rehearse on how they will do it. Everything, all these thousands of years, every feast, every law, David's life, all of these were rehearsals to prepare us so that when Jesus came, we'll recognize him. Okay? Um, in um, part C, I think it's part C, yeah, the third point, Jesus, uh, scripture causes our hearts to burn with love for him. The Luke 24 experience when after Jesus disappears, he breaks bread. He's like quite mysterious. He breaks bread and then they're like, their eyes are open. They're like, oh, this is Jesus. And after that, he disappears. Okay? And then later on when they are recounting, as they are walking back to Jerusalem, they are recounting. And this is the question that they ask. This is the reason why burning hearts called burning hearts. Okay. And they said this, Did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. I already spoke about how, you know, Emmaus is like the opposite way and then they return. I believe that some of us are on our road to Emmaus, so to speak. We are like taking a detour. We're like walking a different way. But I believe that God has set up appointments for many of us in these pages of scripture. Um, and these revelations are going to change the course of your journey. I believe that there are revelations in here um, as we study the scripture and find Jesus in it that it would change the course of our journey and of our lives. Okay, Leviticus 23, this is my favorite. <laughs> Leviticus 23 talks about the appointed feasts of the Lord. It talks, starts off with the Sabbath, then it talks about the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and finally the Feast of Tabernacles. So, if you can, if you read it, you'll be like, what's this about, man? And then like, I have some friends who are really into this, then like, they'll be like, it's Yom Kippur! Or it's the Feast of Sukkot! Please tune in right now and let all the nations join in this celebration. And I'm like, for a long time, I'm like, I cannot relate because it's like, what is this? I'm not Jewish, right? It's like, this, this is no longer applicable. Furthermore, in Colossians, Paul already said, don't let anyone pass judgment on you with regards to a festival or new moon or, or Sabbath. These things are a shadow of things to come where the substance belongs to Christ. Anyway, it's my voice, but it's Paul's words. So, the, and with that tone... Um, and I think we often read this passage and we say, okay, don't let anyone judge me. And we use this as like kind of scriptural credence. You see, I don't need to engage in all this kind of stuff, okay? But actually, there's also a second point within, within this, which is that all of these are signs for which the substance is Christ, which means that actually encoded within these festivals, there's something about Christ in there. And when you study it, it's pretty mind-blowing, Okay? So let's go to the next slide, and there's a table. It's really small. But if you look at the seven feasts there, I believe that they were all fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Some of them were already fulfilled, and I'm just going to make a few comments on the timeline of it. Passover, if you read the Passover accounts, it's unmistakable. The parallels with Jesus' death is unmistakable. For starters, Jesus was crucified on Passover. He's called the Lamb. His blood is spread on the doorposts of wood. 
and that is the one that brings your salvation, which passes you over from death. Okay, so the, the parallels are unmistakable. Anyway, it happens on the 14th or 15th day of the first month in the Jewish calendar. The Feast of Unleavened Bread happens for seven days thereafter, and Jesus was buried during this period. Okay, there's a Jewish tradition that you would take the unleavened bread and you would break it into a few pieces and you will hide one piece for three days. And at the end of the three days, you'll go and find it. Sounds familiar? Okay. Feast of first fruits. Feast of first fruits in Leviticus 23, you'll read, is the first, very first harvest of the harvest that is to come. And it's a very small harvest, but it's the first. And you would take the very first harvest and you would present it, the high priest would present it as a wave offering before the Lord, as one acceptable before him. This, I believe, as Paul was saying, that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits from the dead. He's the firstborn of all of creation. And it was fulfilled on that exact day. It's like, it's unmistakable. Acts chapter 2, in the day of Pentecost, was fulfilled exactly on the day of Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks. And this commemorated the summer harvest. It was the first, after the first fruits, this was the first next significant harvest. And that was where the church was born. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon the New Testament church. So it was fulfilled exactly on that day. Okay, I just want to make a point here. If you look at timeline, all three of Passover, Feast of Unleavened and First Fruits happened in very close proximity to each other. Actually, they happened in seven days of each other. As how the prophetic clock and calendar in Jesus' time accelerated through his death and his resurrection and 49 days later through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. A lot of things happen. And then there's this huge gap. There's this huge gap in between the spring harvest of Israel and the summer harvest that is to come, which comes in the seventh month. Okay? And there are three feasts in the seventh month, which I believe speaks, and there are many parallels with the second coming of Jesus. And if you were, we live somewhat in this pause between the first and the second month and the seventh month. And the first of the summer feast is the Feast of Trumpets. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul talks about the return of Christ coming with a trumpet blast from heaven. The day of atonement on Yom Kippur, I believe, is fulfilled in the day of the Lord, where it brings about a purification and atonement for all creation, not just the first fruits. And the Feast of Booths, which commemorated how Israel moved around in tabernacles and in booths in the wilderness, and they sheltered the presence of God in booths will be fulfilled when New Jerusalem comes, the ultimate tabernacle and the ultimate booth, if you would. And all three of these happen in very close proximity to each other. Basically, they happen within 22 days of the seventh month. I'm not going to speculate the exact day. Okay, certainly we don't know what year, but you, know, you can guess. If the first four events happen exactly on that day, I'm not going to go there, but I think that it's, it's interesting. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, finally the Psalms. Okay, so we, we talked a bit about this, about how Jesus spoke about the need for him to suffer, to die, and to, and to be raised again. But the disciples didn't get it. Okay? But actually a thousand years, more than a thousand years before uh, the life of Jesus, David constantly spoke about it. So I think in the next slide, if you look there... Uh, is there a bunch of psalms? Is there a bunch of psalms there? 
Oh yeah, this one. There's a bunch of Psalms there. If you go and read all of them, they all speak about the suffering of Jesus. Um, they spoke about his suffering and death. But yet the religious leaders who memorize all of this, now, all the religious leaders memorize basically the whole Old Testament. Like, memorized it. Okay? Um, despite them knowing it to that extent, it's possible that they didn't see it. Okay? But I just want to paint a picture. Um, let's go to Psalm 22. Um, I'm just going to speak briefly about Okay, let's go to it. Yeah, let's, I'm going to speak briefly. In Matthew 27, um, Matthew records um, the picture of Jesus' resurrection. And Luke and John and Mark as well do, if you piece all the four accounts together, you get a pretty complete picture of the entirety of his crucifixion scene. And the parallels to Psalm 22 are unmistakable. Psalm 22 may as well have been a post-mortem of a guy who was looking at it, writing it. But this happened thousands of years before through David. I'm going to point out, well, the, the most obvious thing is that Jesus on the cross, he says this, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Um, Matthew 27, at the start, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And a lot of us have this I mean, some, some people have this belief in, oh, it's, you know, God has forsaken him. He has laid the sin of humanity on him. The, the presence of the Lord withdrew from him. And so he has been forsaken by God for our sake. And it's like, sometimes I feel very forsaken by God. So, so it's like, oh, I, I feel like, what a friend I have in Jesus. Anyway, so, may not be wrong, but also not the point, okay? The point is that he's quoting the psalm. Because it's literally the first line of Psalm 22. And it's like almost like, it's like Amazing Grace, right? If I sing, Amazing Grace, how sweet. Immediately, I am not just saying how amazing is the grace. I am referring to the song. And almost it's, I want you to go and remember what the song is saying pertaining to what is happening. And it's almost like Jesus is saying, what everything that is doing here and everything seems out of control I'm pointing you back to thousands of years ago. David spoke about this and he prophesied about this and it's happening to the letter. Let's look at Psalm 22, the first part. I, I'm just going to go through quickly so you guys need to split through it. But if you ha have time, go back and look at it. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Lord was seemingly silent on that day, forsaking his chosen king. Verse 7. All who... See me, mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. He who trusts in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him. Jesus was taunted. Let, let he who saves others save himself. If you trust in the Lord, let him take you down from the cross. Point three, Psalm 22 verse 14. All my bones are out of joint. If you understand the mechanics of crucifixion, it's likely that his shoulder blades were probably dislocated to bear his weight on the cross. Point four, Jesus, one of Jesus' sayings on the cross was, I thirst. Right? So I give him the drink. In Psalm 22 verse 15, it says, My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth as you lay me in the dust of death. In Psalm 22, it talks about how his hands and his, and his feet were pierced. It talks about how none of his bones were broken. It talks about how they cast lots for his clothing. How God does not despise the suffering of the afflicted one. All of these things happen exactly 
in the crucifixion scene of Jesus. And all this, if you, so if you read Psalm 22, what is all of this for? There's no answer in Matthew 27 if you read it. But given the parallels, all you have to go is go back to Psalm 22 and say, what is all this for? And it's for this. So that all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow before him. And Jesus' final words on the cross, some people say in Greek, tetelestai. Some people say in, in Aramaic, it's kala. But essentially, he said, it is finished. And if you look at the last verse of Psalm 22, it's this. The Lord has done it. It is finished. In other words, I believe he quoted the start, he quoted the middle, and he quoted the end of Psalm 22. And he's saying, look at this, it's written about me. Have understanding. All of you are like, oh, he can't be a Messiah, he's dying. He's like, guys, look at it, it's written. It's written to such detail. You can't miss it. I'm in this. But there's more. Psalm 22 is not a standalone psalm. Psalm 22 is always sung as a trio. Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Psalm 24. It's always sung as a trio, which means, in other words, read on. Psalm 23, what happens? The Lord is my shepherd. But one of the key verses in Psalm 23 is he descends to the valley of the shadow of death. And that's what Jesus did. And what is this Psalm 24? Psalm 24 is, this, this, is the hill, is the psalm of ascent. And Psalm 24 asks this question, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. It's not talking about you. It's talking about Jesus. <laughs> Maybe after Jesus, then it's talking about you, okay? But it's primarily talking about him. And the psalmist is asking this question, all throughout all of history until Jesus, there was no one who could ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place because no one truly had clean hands and a pure heart until him. And so Psalm 23, after he goes to the valley of shadow and death, then he ascends the hill of the Lord. He walks up. If you look at Daniel 7, he walks up and he approaches the ancient of days as led into his presence. No one does that. And he's the only one found worthy to enter into the presence of the ancient of days. Psalm 24 is interesting. It ends with this. He ends with, Lift up your head, O Asian gates, that the King of glory may come in. He's coming back Strong and mighty, mighty in battle. He came the first time as a meek and suffering servant, Isaiah 53, suffering servant. But Psalm 24 says he's coming back as a king. And it's really interesting. If you read the whole narrative arc of the Bible, it's always Jesus started at, at equality with God. He incarnated to become man, went through the lowest of depths to die on the cross. But he's ascended and he's coming back like that. He's not coming back as a man anymore. He's coming back as a glorified king of kings. Okay. I'm kind of done. Okay. <laughs> I just want to give some uh, practical handles um, on, on eating the scroll. I think um, one of the books that I was reading was John Piper. And he was talking about um, the supernatural um, power of scripture. And he makes this quite profound statement. And he says, the extraordinary spiritual glory of the scripture is perceived through the very ordinary process of reading. In other words, God uses a very human, ordinary labor of studying and reading it and going through your neurons and processing it and Googling the commentaries and all of these things to reveal Jesus to us. Seeing the glory of God is not just this like charismatic 
thing when you come to the front of the stage and then you get slain or like the, the visions the, all of that stuff are good but we cannot miss out on this part and actually if you think about it this is the part which I believe measures the degree of our hunger how much are we going to sit out through this dry stuff so that because we have a love for him um, but one of the barriers I would say this one of the barriers of finding Jesus in the scripture um, is, is something in the heart. Because I always ask myself, sometimes I think I'm a bit of a Pharisee. Uh, so why is it that the Pharisees knew the scriptures so well, but they missed the entirety of it? And Jesus had the most strong rebukes for them. And in John 5, Jesus said this. He said, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? And, and Piper makes this profound statement and says that, Nothing creates a barrier, as great a barrier to seeing what is in Scripture as a heart that loves other things more than God. My way of saying it is this. If you're after prosperity, you can find it in here. If you're after promise and destiny, you can find it in here. If you're after comfort, you can find it in here. But if you're after Jesus, you will definitely find it in here. And whatever that your heart's desire, you, you will find it in here. There's a way to find it in here. And this, this thing reveals the desire of your heart. If your desire is for Jesus, you will find him in here and you will realize that it changes your life. Okay, I'm done. I have, I, have one, I have one thing. Actually, yeah, there's quite a lot of time. So I, I can talk about one, one final thing. <laughs> Actually, I cut it off because it's too long. Um, one of the things which uh, really stirred my heart in Israel was the, the overarching narrative and the storyline of the Bible. And I never really saw it that way. All the way from Genesis to Revelation, that God was writing a consistent story. And I believe the story is roughly this. And actually, Paul kind of captures this in Romans 9 to 11. And the plan all along, right from the start, from, from Genesis 1, was to prepare a people who would be Jesus' eternal companion. The Son of Man desired an eternal companion. That's the reason why all of creation even existed in the first place. And the plan was that there would be eternal companions. What was God's method to do that? First, he chose a single man who was faithful, Abraham. And then he continued that lineage and he chose a nation out of them, or the Jews. And he set them apart. And the reason for that was so that they would be a parable to the rest of humanity to teach us certain things. Israel is betrothed to God, but his plan all along was to include all the nations. If you read Genesis 12, which is before the formation of Israel, you actually realize that his plan was so that they will be a blessing to all the nations. In other words, they were supposed to steward the covenant and the gospel for the coming of Jesus, which was prophesied all the way in Genesis, that he would be revealed so that they will be a blessing to all the nations. But there is a temporary turn away from Israel. By temporary, I mean that in Jesus' own words, or in the words of Paul's, a partial hardening have come upon the Jews and to the full number of Gentiles come in. It's in the sovereign will of God. Okay? Today we live in a world where the definition of God's 
holy priesthood has changed and redefined apart from race. That's why Paul says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither free nor slave, there's neither male nor female, all are in Christ. And the call for salvation is open to all ethnicities. But the plan in Romans 11 is that the salvation of Gentiles, which is like, I believe, all of us here, will lead to removal of Israel's hardening. In other words, God has not given up on the people that he initially chose. While they rejected him, he doesn't reject them. He brings it to all the nations and all the nations are going to be partnering with God to bring the Jews back to salvation. This dynamic in the end time is going to lead to an innumerable bride of people from every tribe, nation and town. And it's emphasized consistently in Revelation. The condition of the second coming of Jesus is that his bride will be perfect. In other words, right from the start, the desire for his eternal companion, that they will be full in both number and they'll be full in beauty and maturity. That is the condition that he has set. In other words, the return of Christ, the ball is in our court, so to speak. When will we come as the bride waiting for him into full number, which is making disciples of all nations, and come into full beauty and maturity, spotless bride, saying in unison with the Spirit, come Lord Jesus. That perfection of that bride, I believe, is brought about by many things, primarily the sovereign will um, and the action of the Holy Spirit upon all of us. But one of the key things is true scripture. Romans ten seventeen, is true scripture. The beholding of his glory in this is one of God's primary ways that he has given the church, especially given what, you know, what we were talking about right from the start, that God is flooding the earth with his word. This is one of the primary ways in which he's going to prepare his bride for the return of Jesus. And Paul concludes this whole thing. Though, in other words, his wedding prep, okay, his wedding prep is so elaborate and so roundabout across thousands of years, so baffling that Paul concludes, oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his wisdoms and inscrutable are his ways. But when Paul grasped that, he was like, I'm mind blown. Okay, uh, can we have the bed? <laughs> then um, I'm going to, I feel there are two groups of people that um, I would like to pray for. Um, then you can just come and respond as the band plays and then I think we'll pray for you. Yeah, if you can stand. Um, the first group of people that I feel um, are stirring to pray for um, are singers musicians and songwriters um, and I feel that there is a there is a call and there's a grace for writers to give melody to scriptures I believe that as 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 you dig into the scripture if you're a singer songwriter and musician that God was going to just give you melody to the words that inside that God was going to give you the vocabulary that you've been searching for to write scriptures and you're going to say I want you to put tune to my eternal words. Um, the second group of people that, are, that I, I feel like we should pray for are people who, who are stuck in their Bible reading. I don't know whether or not like um, listening to this sermon, you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, um, when I open it, it's like, I, I don't feel that. I feel dry. Um, I've tried to. So I'm not even go into like all these weird, weird passages. I read the Gospels and I'm also like, it's just boring or whatever. 
and, and I feel it's a mystery, it's a grace. Um, certainly don't take my, my season of what I'm going through as the norm and, and, and something that's expected from everyone. It's a grace. But I just want to pray for us that um, there's, no, there's no formula about it, but I believe that there's a grace for the Holy Spirit to just activate us. Um, there's, Holy, there's, a, there's a grace for the Holy Spirit to come and open up the mysteries. And I'll pray that the Lord will lead us into the Bible study that He did on the road to Emmaus. He opened up the scripture for our hearts to burn.